Before we launch into today's episode, I want to tell you about a new podcast you might like. It's called Into the Zone, and it's a show about opposites and how borders are never as clear as we think. The host is the acclaimed novelist Hari Kunzru, and you get to follow him as he goes from Berlin to Paris, from Ojai to Charlottesville, looking for the gray areas between life and death, east and west, black and white. He meets philosophers and punk rockers, new age gurus and space explorers, and what they say will give you new insights into some of the biggest issues of the day. Issues like cultural appropriation and immigration and privacy, not to mention whether there's life on the moon. For a trip to the borderlands, listen to Into the Zone from Pushkin Industries, wherever you get your podcasts. In a post-internet world, consumers now look at every point of engagement with a brand as being, in their minds anyway, the store. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. It's September, which normally means a busy back-to-school season in the art world, but the pandemic is making it impossible for galleries to unveil the slew of major exhibitions and year-ending spectacle we would enjoy in a typical fall season. The silver lining, however, is that the prolonged shutdown has forced the industry to finally get serious about mixing online and offline into a hybrid model that resembles what far more sophisticated luxury and fashion retailers have been doing for years. To find out what the sleepy gallery business can learn for the haute couturiers and the luxury businesses, I'm very happy to be joined on the show today by Doug Stevens, a Canadian futurist better known as the Retail Prophet, who has advised brands from LVMH and Walmart to Disney and Microsoft. A regular contributor to the business of fashion, Doug is also about to release his third book titled Resurrecting Retail, The Future of Business in a Post-Pandemic World. Thank you very much for coming on The Art Angle, Doug. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So before we get started, just to clarify to our listeners and maybe to myself a little bit, what exactly does a futurist do and how do you do it? Good question. I, I, I guess the, the easiest way to begin to explain it is to sort of frame it up by saying, first of all, I don't regard what I do as being reporting on trends in the conventional sense. But futurism to me is really looking more broadly at the changes that are manifesting themselves across society, not necessarily within a particular vertical or a particular industry or category, but really more from a, a wide angle lens, so to speak. Rather than sort of putting a market under a microscope, you're looking sort of at the universe through a radio telescope. And you're trying to take all of these different insights from different industries, different parts of society, and you're really trying to identify as patterns in that information. And that's the difficult part of futurism is that really our lives are made up of instances and patterns. Instances of things occurring can set the wheels of change in motion. You know, one assassination can start a world war, as we saw in World War One, And so instances can't be discounted, but change occurs as a result of patterns. And I think that the social unrest that was brought about by George Floyd's death is a great example. There was outrage at the instance 
of George Floyd's death, but it was the pattern of uh, police brutality and race that Hmm. brought that change, brought that movement about. So I regard my role as really someone whose responsibility is scanning the environment at all times, looking for patterns, and then reporting on the patterns I think are significant to a given business, vertical, industry, or category. Right now, we're in the midst of a a protest movement that you referenced, wrapped in an economic crisis, tied up in a pandemic, and dunked into a vat of global political instability. I mean, there are so many unknowns at play. There's the, the outcome of the U.S. election. You've got this question of when the COVID vaccine might arrive and and will it work as advertised? Is this a terrible time to be a futurist or is this maybe a good time to be a futurist? Well, it's a difficult time. And for all the reasons that you just pointed out, Andrew, you know, I say it's, it's like trying to put together a jigsaw puzzle in the middle of a hurricane, right? The pieces are blowing all over the place. You don't know which pieces fit together with which, but you're grabbing as many pieces as you can and you're trying to distill it eventually into a, some sort of coherent picture of A, what is happening and B, what, what is likely to happen based on, on what we know. And, and then there's also always the creative element to futurism as well, is that you have to take a stab at understanding the unknowns. Now, on the other hand, it's also a great time to be a futurist because so many people are wondering what is going on and what is likely to happen. And a lot of people uh, don't have the, the luxury that I have of being able to really dedicate the work that I do each day to just trying to understand that future. And so, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, tough time to do the work, but a, certainly a time where the work is valued and needed. It seems that the, the great challenge for any business these days is probably figuring out how the old-fashioned in-person store-based paradigm can and should exist with this whole new online reality. But now with the pandemic, the in-person strategy of doing gallery shows and traveling to art fairs is next to impossible, if not impossible. So finally, they really need to learn from what is going on in retail. And I want to ask, what in a nutshell is going on in the world of retail these days? I mean, I know it's a big question, but what what are some of the, the predominant trajectories of the moment? Yeah. So, you know, it's important, I think, to understand, too, that the the retail industry prior to the pandemic was not exactly the rosiest landscape either. You know, the industry was in a period of relatively tepid growth. There were channels and formats that were really struggling. Um, No secret that the department store channel, for example, was really having trouble finding relevance. Hmm. In a post-pandemic world, what has happened now is that we have, as an industry, essentially been pushed, kicking and screaming, into the digital era once and for all in almost an overnight change. And so... What we saw initially in that transition was that much the way COVID-19 attacks human beings with pre-existing conditions and vulnerabilities, we saw exactly the same scenario play out in the world of retail. So the first wave of fallout, and there has been a tremendous amount of fallout, but it really has been among those more vulnerable characters in the marketplace. The fear going forward is that the longer the crisis protracts, the longer consumers feel vulnerable, both medically and economically, that this uh, crisis could start claiming healthy 
brands as well. So, you know, as I say, it was an industry that was already in transition, but this has sped the transition. And uh, I believe we are going to wind up with a very, very different retail landscape when we come out on the other end. Hmm. One trajectory that seems to have preceded the pandemic that you've written about very interestingly in your last book, Reengineering Retail, is that the entire purpose of a store has been changing and that it has actually at some point along the way swapped places with the role of media. And I, I feel like that is a very relevant concept. So could you explain that a little bit? Sure. If you Go you know, back in, in time, pre-internet, uh, the rules of commerce were pretty simple. You went out on the open market and you bought media. And the purpose of that media was to call attention to your brand, your products, your services, and ultimately to drive consumers to a point of distribution. That was basically the construct. And to win... You simply had to, in most cases, uh, run a decent business and outspend your competitors on advertising. And if you could do those two things, you could be largely successful. The problem is that today we find ourselves in a place where the cost of digital media to reach consumers is becoming exorbitant. So between 2017 and 2018, the cost of a Facebook ad doubled. A lot of brands, a lot of businesses frankly, are being priced out of that media market now. But something else has sort of happened in the process. In a post-internet world, consumers now look at every point of engagement with a brand as being, in their minds anyway, the store. So if I'm a consumer, I'm looking at TikTok as the store. Instagram is the store. If you have an ad on Facebook, that is the store. But that doesn't negate the value of physical retail. It just changes the purpose. And so there's this reversal of roles coming around. And now we find ourselves in this place where the incremental cost of acquiring a customer through digital platforms now, in some cases, is actually more expensive than the lifetime value of the customer themselves. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So what does that mean? Well, it means that Stores, physical stores or galleries now can, in fact, become not only a more effective means of acquiring new customers, they can actually become a more cost-efficient means of doing that. But it means that as gallery owners, as retailers, as business people, we have to start thinking about our physical assets not simply as a distribution channel for products, but a distribution channel for experiences. And essentially, a store or a gallery now becomes a vehicle for experiential media. It's a means of galvanizing a relationship with a consumer in a powerful, immersive, and human way that then can be transported onto any channel. Once I buy into your culture and your expertise and, and the products that you sell, I'm happy to buy from, from you anywhere. So in a weird way, stores have turned into a powerful media channel and media has turned into an extremely powerful distribution channel. And here we are. There's a, an art advisor named Todd Levin. And in the beginning of the pandemic, when everything was shutting down, he actually hopped on a plane and flew across the country to go inspect a, a very valuable artwork in person because that's how important this 360-degree experience of an artwork is 
You want to be able to look at the condition. You want to look at the patina. You want to be able to look at it from all directions and, and really examine it. You've written about some developments that are happening in AR and VR in retail that seem to be pointing to something far more usable. I mean, that you wrote about a company that allows you to have a glove that lets you feel the surface of an object and feel the texture. I mean, what are some of the things that are happening in in the the real avant-garde of VR and AR? Yeah. So, you know, the truth is we sit right now on the cusp of a number of different technologies. And the one that you mentioned, it's actually mapping the texture of something and turning that texture into vibrations, which then become tactile through a stylus. So if I wanted to feel the feeling of leather, for example, they can map that texture and then convert that into vibration that I can feel in the tips of my fingers. We have immersive forms of virtual reality now. We have augmented reality that can allow you to literally place items inside your home. So if you want to see the way a piece of art will look on your walls, you can do that. (laughs) Where we're being rate limited right now is not by our imaginations, but rather by the technology itself. Does virtual reality look exactly like reality? No, it doesn't. And the reason for that is simply uh, that we don't have the hardware or the software right now to actually produce that level of (laughs) reality. But uh, it is coming. And with uh, the advent of things like uh, 5G networks, we are going to see these technologies become more and more viable as an alternative reality. And, And just to your other point too, Andrew, you're right. I mean, when someone looks at a piece of art, they want to really you know, see it from every angle. They want to understand it in the right light. They really want to understand the technique and all aspects of it. But what's interesting to me is that in many ways, that's the same as, as a major purchase like an automobile. You know, before you drop twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars, you want to know what does it look like, what does it feel like, all these things. And that said, the fastest growing startup in America right now is Carvana, a business that sells cars online. <laughs> they are one of the fastest growing startups of all time, and they now represent the, the second largest auto dealer in the United States. And these cars are sold entirely online with a seven day guarantee. My question is, could art be sold the same way? You've written a lot about Amazon and the way that Amazon has been slowly but surely taking over most industries that it touches. And to go back 10 or even 20 years, it seemed that everybody in the art business wanted to be the Amazon of the art world. You even had Amazon try with uh, Sotheby's in 2000 as a partnership, and then they launched Amazon Art in 2013. And they completely failed and the other ones didn't really catch on. And I wonder, why do you think that might be? I think that Amazon is a lot like like a chainsaw. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I say that because it, it is not a pretty thing to look at. Amazon is not beautiful. Amazon is not fun to use. But what it is, is extremely effective. You know, so if you want to buy something and you want to buy something really fast and you have it the next day, Amazon's great. But when it comes to things that are emotionally centered, and I think art is one of those things, Amazon has a tendency to actually suck the emotion right out of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it doesn't matter what product you're looking at, 
on Amazon. Everything kind of looks like everything else. It's a very sort of grid-based shopping experience. There's nothing emotionally connected or immersive about it. And again, I think that art is, uh, like so many other things, art is really just uh, the packaging of a story. Hmm. And what Amazon is not good at is telling stories. You know, they're good at giving descriptions and, and cataloging information and putting you on a slipstream toward getting the things that you want quickly. But they're not good storytellers. And that hmm. is part of the reason that they have not done well in the field of art. They have also not done well in luxury. Mm-hmm. And I believe when we buy luxury, we're also buying a story. You know, uh, and it's the story that gives us status, not the article itself. Now, having said that, I think they understand that too. And so there was an announcement, in fact, just today or yesterday, that Amazon is, in fact, setting up a luxury marketplace. It is not going to look like Amazon. They're going to give luxury brands the opportunity to really build out their own aesthetic to create their own brand presence, a very, very different kind of platform than Amazon has ever offered before. Hmm. And that leads me to believe that if they have success with a platform like that, then they start to move into the realm of possibility to sell things like art. Hmm. I mean, I, I think you hit the nail on the head with Amazon because the interface of seeing a grid of pretty much undifferentiated artworks is pretty much the worst possible way that you could ever experience art. People complain about going to art fairs and being inundated by all this art that that is kind of context-free, but it has so much more context than what you see on a computer screen in a grid format. You're absolutely right. You know, if you were just shown a picture of a Jackson Pollock without any knowledge of who he was or the movement that he was a part of, you would just look at it and think it was maybe the work of a crazy person or a, of a child. You know, But once you understand the backstory, once you understand the artist's life and their torment and what was going on politically at the time and what gave rise to this movement in the art world, <laughs> now all of a sudden, that's worth buying. You know, that's something that has value because there is a powerful story attached to it. So, you know, the old grid pattern of a website, you're right, doesn't do it. But if I could step into a virtual world and if I could see a pretty darn good representation of what that art looks like, and I can actually talk to the artist themselves mm-hmm. about that piece and get that backstory, now all of a sudden uh, that could change the game. What does that mean for the actual individual brick and mortar galleries? What, what can they learn from this notion of, of storytelling and contextualization and the failures of this previously embraced way of doing art e-commerce? I, I would say that, again, if we regard the store as being a media channel, then it, it can allow us to sort of break out of this idea that if no one can come to my gallery, then my gallery is sort of useless. I don't believe that. Um, We've seen some really cool stuff where brands have said, okay, we can't have consumers into our store, but we still have a super cool store and we have employees who work in the store. So why can't we actually project the store to the consumer? 
Mm-hmm. Why can't we use the store not as a distribution vehicle, but we can use it as a stage. We can use it as a studio. We can create a, 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 a television set, you know, that we can begin broadcasting out to maybe not even just our our chosen customers, but a wider audience that it includes thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. And brands in the retail space are doing that out of necessity to reach out to consumers. There's one case of a department store in China called in-time department stores. They had to shut all 60 of their department stores. Uh, what did they do? They turned around and they said to 5,000 of their sales associates, okay, guess what? You're live streamers. So mm-hmm. here's, the, here's the technology you need to do it. Here's the app you can use. Talk to your customers, live stream to your customers and take the store to them. And that's mm-hmm. precisely what they did. So you know, I, I think if you just look at the space through that lens, what do you, what do you have in your gallery? Well, you have uh, beautiful pieces of art, you have a beautiful space and you have people that know about those pieces. So I say build a bridge out to your customers and use the store as a stage. If the retail industry is several years ahead of the art industry, it seems that Chinese retail is several years ahead of Western retail. Are, are there any other mind-blowing kinds of developments that are, you know, are happening in this kind of COVID and I guess already post-COVID time over there? Well, I mean, just to give you a sense that the culture of Chinese retail is that Chinese consumers will buy across channels in any circumstance. And the way retail has been designed, and this is really a credit to Jack Ma, who was the founder of of Alibaba, is that where most businesses say, okay, we have a physical channel, we have an online channel, and consumers can come to those channels and buy from us. What Jack Ma said was, what we should be doing is putting the consumer at the center of the universe Hmm. and saying that we're going to create an ecosystem around that consumer so that every point of contact that they have with our brand is an opportunity to buy in the moment. So if they're watching a fashion show online, they can buy right there and then just by clicking on the product that they want. If they're listening to uh, you know, a piece of music, they can buy it. If they're watching a TV show, they can buy the products in the TV show. He's created a world where commerce is embedded into every form of media and every form of entertainment, as opposed to sort of drawing these lines and saying, you can shop online, you can shop in store, or if you really want, you can buy online and pick up at the store. And to go back to what you said about using the the store as a stage set, that actually applies pretty much directly to what we saw Christie's and Sotheby's do in their first virtual, you know, online global auctions. And, and that kind of reminds me of the introduction to a recent column you wrote, and I'll, I'll just read it quickly. You said that films about the future very often present the world that awaits us as a dark dystopia dominated by a handful of malevolent megacorporations controlling much of consumer life on Earth, dot, dot, dot. In a post-pandemic retail landscape, such corporations will no longer reside solely in novels or films. They will become a reality. Do you think that kind of drive towards consolidation, is that something that the art world, the art business should expect as well? Through this crisis, we have seen the vulnerability in certain aspects of our lives as we lead them today. Education being a good example. Right now, millions of kids face a choice. 
of either staying healthy or going back to school. That certainly should not be the case. You know, but the education system has failed. The education system was perhaps in some ways like retail or, or art galleries. The education system resisted the clear impetus to go online, to, to produce high quality online learning tools. So what has happened as a consequence? Well, Google just announced the other day that it is starting uh, its own degree programs that you can get through Google not for thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars, but for hundreds of dollars and that they will be treated as accredited programs. So what's happening is that as aspects of our society fail to deliver in these times of crisis, we're leaving the window open for brands like Google and businesses of that size to say, okay, we'll be the solution. I believe the same thing is going to happen across banking, insurance, healthcare, and of course, education. So I believe that coming out of this crisis, these companies are going to be inserted into consumers' lives in a way that no one thought in a pre-pandemic state would even be possible or permissible. So then the question is, well, why don't we just break them up, right? Well, you know, we've been threatening to do this. And well, Jeff Bezos sat in front of Congress for three hours and uh, basically got off scot-free. There, there will be no ramifications. Why? Because there's never been a time in history when consumers have been more dependent on Amazon to get the things they want or on Google to get the information they need. And that should make everyone worried. Everyone in the business world, no matter what you do, should be concerned about that and ready to compete at a totally different level when this is over. Well, you know, one of the most exciting trends in the art business prior to the pandemic was the rise of these, you know, so-called immersive art experiences with cutting-edge artists like Team Lab and Studio Drift putting together these spectacular artworks that you could enter and you could engage with and you could take, you know, pictures of and post it on Instagram. As soon as the pandemic hit, it kind of, you know, was a major speed bump here. But just a few weeks ago, Mark Glimter, who's the CEO of Pace Gallery, announced that he was teaming up with Lorene Powell Jobs to launch something called Super Blue, which is this new initiative specializing in precisely these kinds of immersive experiential artworks and then selling tickets to see them, which is a totally different business model for art than you know anything that's really come before. And what do you think of that? You know, I think that people who are, are working on things like that are brilliant to be doing so right now. Um, in the very short term, there's a knee-jerk reaction where you say, oh my God, we have to get online. But the fact of the matter is, when you look at this historically, the Spanish flu of 1918-19 killed 50 million people worldwide. By any measure, it was a cataclysm. It was brutal for two solid years, but it didn't kill the hotel industry. <laughs> it certainly didn't kill the restaurant industry. So we will overcome this. We will come to a point where we are back into the physical world and ready to engage with it. And if we just look at New York City, for example, rents have dropped in New York City by about 10% on commercial leases. There will be companies that really take the opportunity to get great deals, to be in places that they might never have otherwise been able to get into. So we can't discount the idea that we, we are going to come out of this. Consumers will be hungry for physical experiences. 
Will we maybe have to observe some ongoing protocols? Will we have to ensure that people actually feel that they're safe, that things are clean, that things are sanitized? And perhaps there may be some lingering you know, feelings about that. But if I could convey to retailers that what, they're, what they're really embarking on when they create consumer experiences is they're they're embarking on creating a production. It's not a matter of opening the door in the morning and seeing what happens. It's a matter of treating that door to your gallery or your store as the curtain. The curtain opens, the audience is there, and it is showtime. And for every hour that you're open, that show is going on. And the degree to which you can move the audience is ultimately the lasting impression that you're going to leave. And if you really move them, they'll buy a product from you just almost as a souvenir in the same way we buy a t-shirt as we leave a Broadway show. Hmm. It's, it's a memento, you know, of a wonderful experience. Well, I'm, I'm certainly going to be looking forward to reading your new book, Resurrecting Retail. And thank you very much for coming on the show. This was really a treat. Thanks for having me, Andrew. A pleasure. Well, that's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Tim Schneider and Caroline Goldstein and edited by Nick Long. Thanks for listening and see you next week.